My name is Mike Wong, and this is Strange New Worlds, a science and Star Trek podcast. In episode 12, we chat with my fellow Caltech graduate student, Nathan Stein. When Nathan isn't co-captaining the Caltech Geological and Planetary Sciences softball team with me, he can be found flying a drone on a beautiful Caribbean island. For science, of course. Upon his return to campus, Elise and I sat down with Nathan to find out exactly what he was doing on that island and what a drone can accomplish that humans cannot. So, welcome to episode 12, now a dozen episodes of Strange New Worlds, a science and Star Trek podcast. Today's guest is Nathan Stein, and Nathan, you want to tell us a little bit about yourself? Yeah, so I'm, I guess, going into my third year as a PhD student here at Caltech in planetary science. I'm co-advised by John Grotzer and Bethany Elman, and as a result, I work on kind of a, a combination of things mostly dealing with planetary geology. So that ranges from the Curiosity rover mission on Mars to working on the Dawn mission, which is an orbiter that's uh, studying the dwarf planet Sirius. That's the largest object in the asteroid belt. And then I also work on uh, more terrestrial problems, studying kind of geological problems on Earth, too. Very cool. So I know you're a little bit familiar with Star Trek. How much Star Trek have you seen? <laughs> so I, I kind of dabble in it. So I've seen uh, some of the original series back in the day with my dad. I'd, I'd watch an episode during lunch from time to time. And, you know, I, I appreciate Star Trek both for, at least in the original series, the, the combination of corniness, which I appreciate in, in all things, and also, you know, how introspective it is and, and the... the sometimes intricate problems that it addresses. And then more recently, I've, I've seen some of the, the newer movies, the newer series of movies. I don't know what you would call them. But. Well, uh, I the would reboots. call them, yeah, the reboots is one name. The Kelvin timeline is another one that they just recently decided upon okay. because the, the Romulan starship goes through the black hole and emerges and destroys the USS Kelvin. So they, they call it the Kelvin timeline. Kelvin is this J.J. Abrams trope, right? He always tries to fit somewhere in any movie that he produces or directs the usage of, of Kelvin. I think to honor one of his like fallen family members who was named Kelvin. Kelvin? Yeah. He was lucky that his fallen family member has the name of a pretty influential scientist, mathematician, fellow. That's right, yeah. You know, that wasn't his actual name. I don't know his real name, but Lord, Lord Kelvin Kel was not his name. He's like the, like, you get like a Lord name or something. Lord Kelvin's name was not actually Kelvin in any way, shape, or form. That was just like the title that came with the land that he owned or something like that. Fascinating. Okay, so I don't know if you've seen this movie called Star Trek Insurrection. I don't I, think I I've seen that one. You've not seen that one? Okay. Uh, I don't think so. Yeah, it's... Is there a drone? It, there is a drone. <laughs> As you may have guessed by now, this podcast is about drones. Now, Star Trek Insurrection is the ninth Star Trek film and the third one to feature the Next Generation cast. And it's not generally considered to be 
Star Trek's finest hour. Um, but <laughs> there are some cool things that go on in Like it. a drone. Like a or many. <laughs> um, so to sum up, if you've not seen Star Trek Insurrection, there are a group of people, they call themselves the Sona, and they are trying to forcibly remove another group of people from a planet that they want. And the way they do this is by sending down a fleet of drones that fly around. They're probably about shoebox sized. And each drone has the ability to shoot a transporter corresponder tag. And if, if this dart hits you, then you are tagged to be beamed up away from this planet or into uh, basically uh, another ship where you will be transported away. Why didn't they just kill all the people? Well, they, they, they wanted to believe that they were being somewhat humane, right? They didn't want okay. to slaughter these people. Actually, it's a little more complicated than this. The, the Sona are actually uh, a fledgling group of this original population on this planet. So they, they have some ties to them. Okay. So it's like, okay. Yeah. I'm just imagining aliens and I'm just like, we've, we've established how little regard for alien life that Captain Kirk has. And I mean, next gen's better, but, but still. There's a lot of vaporizing that goes on. Well, uh, luckily the Sona decide not to, to vaporize people and just attack people for transport. And they use these drones to accomplish this task. And I feel like this is the, the main rap that drones get in our day and age as sort of weapons um, used for all sorts of nefarious purposes, both in real life and in science fiction. But Nathan, you use drones for the good of science. <laughs> So, I know you recently came back from an expedition to a far-off, exotic, amazing location where you used a drone to study something really cool. And so I'm wondering if you can tell us a little bit about that story of yours. Yeah. So this actually started a couple of years ago. I, I guess I'll, I'll back up and say folks may have noticed over the last like five to ten years that, that personal drones have started to become a thing. And I, I think it's just a combination both of more efficient batteries and better and smaller computers and better control systems that have kind of allowed drones to become affordable. So there are you know, multiple tiers of drones. As you mentioned, there are plenty of drone uses that some people might consider more nefarious, like, like military drones. But there are also personal drones that folks use um, just to take pictures. And more recently, over the last few years, this is, the use of drones has kind of spread out um, to multiple industries, things like agriculture and, and people using drones to track the health of their crops and see uh, where they might need to uh, you know, put down more fertilizer or whatever, and also in the mining industry. And uh, kind of a, a natural spread has been to use those drones to do science and particularly in the field of geology when you're doing something like mapping and you have to cover a wide area and you only have a finite amount of time to do that, drones represent a great tool. So you know, in the past, uh, if you wanted to say, collect a bunch of aerial photos that you could then go back and either take a look through the photos to find an area that you might want to address in more detail or even uh, just do a more holistic mapping on those photos. Uh, you might do something like charter a plane and, and take images from the plane. And nowadays you're starting to see a, sh a shift where uh, more and more geologists are starting to use some of these personal to like, bordering on industrial drones for similar applications. And so back in the summer of 2016 we went to, as you mentioned, maybe not a super far off or exotic place, but it's a small uninhabited island in the Turks and Caicos, um, which is 
uh, carbonate platform southeast of the Bahamas, and this island is, is called Little Ambergris. And so basically, if you, if you can imagine the setting, you would have kind of a, a bunch of disparate islands that are all sitting on top of this carbonate shelf, which is basically like many kilometers of sediment comprised mostly of just dead organisms that are piled on top of each other. And so you get really shallow, nice, picturesque water. Mm. Uh, and then on top of that, you have these islands. Uh, and this island in particular is made up of uh, these small carbonate grains that precipitate out of the water there uh, called ooids. And so most of the island is actually underwater. Only the kind of bedrock edges around the island are exposed. And the, the interesting thing on this island and the reason that we went is because those areas that are underwater are covered by microbial mats. And so the, the initial goal uh, that I had last year was just a mapping of the island. And so we brought along uh, a small drone made by a company which actually more or less has a monopoly on commercial drones called DJI. It's a Chinese company. And we initially just set out with the goal of using it to aid in, in some of our mapping, you know, take cool pictures of areas where folks were collecting samples in situ of these microbial mats. And what we ended up realizing very quickly is that we could cover a huge amount of, of uh, area with this drone. And so we ended up mapping out the entire island. And uh, what we used that data set to do is basically by, by taking overlapping photos and using a technique called photogrammetry, which is the basically just using parallax. It's the same way your eyes can uh, figure out the distance between objects. You can do the same thing to produce uh, an elevation map. So basically with the drone, we were able to produce a map uh, of the entire island and a corresponding elevation map. And then the, the question uh, that we wanted to address is, mm -hmm. Uh, what is controlling the texture and the shape of these microbial mats on the island. All right, so I feel like I want to back up and ask a few questions. So first of all, uh, you're studying microbial mats on these Caribbean islands. Mm -hmm. What is a microbial mat and why is it important? It's an excellent question, Mike. Yeah, so a, a microbial mat is basically a vertically stratified collection of microbes that respond to gradients as you go into the mat, gradients both in the amount of sunlight and also chemical gradients as an output of the organisms in these different layers, as an output of their metabolism. So typically these mats will start with a layer of bacteria that undergo photosynthesis. These are called cyanobacteria, and it's a, a nice layer of these green bacteria. The entire mat is really squishy, and then the byproducts from those cyanobacteria feed other kind of more exotic microorganisms that are farther down in the mats. And so if you take one of these mats in cross-section, uh, you'll see that the color changes from green to purple, uh, and then to brown, and then back to, to other colors. And those colors that you see in the mats are different pigments that are being produced by those different microorganisms, which have different metabolisms. And so the question of why they're interesting has a number of answers. From a biological perspective, historically they're interesting because in the geologic record, you see them fossilized going back billions of years, and they're thought to be kind of one of the first vestiges of, of life in the early Earth, and potentially one of the environments in which life first developed. From a modern biological perspective, they're interesting in that they house a wide diversity of metabolisms that you see on Earth, and studying them goes a long way toward understanding uh, how those metabolisms work. From my perspective, it shifts more toward the geologic side in that on Little Ambergris we have this great example of a modern environment that has microbial mats and then we want to see what's controlling their shape. And that kind of goes toward our understanding of how to interpret microbial mats when we see them 
in the rock record in the distant past to understand what those environments once looked like. Why would studying those metabolisms actually be relevant or interesting? Yeah, well, uh, I, I can speak to this only insofar as I hear other geobiologists at, at Caltech speak about this issue. But one application that kind of strains along the line of planetary science and geobiology is addressing uh, the different types of metabolisms that are possible and in what environments those metabolisms might be expressed. So uh, if someone is considering life on another planet, like a, a place like Mars, or even on the early Earth, which was drastically different than the surface of the Earth is today, one has to consider what environments uh, microorganisms would persist in and, and what resources they would be able to utilize. And what's so cool about microbial mats is the microorganisms are persisting in environments that aren't traditionally hospitable in the sense that you and I might think about a place that we'd like to grow up in. So you're talking about areas that are anoxygenic, that don't have any light, and uh, you get microorganisms that are uh, reducing sulfur uh, or even other more exotic compounds. But I would love to grow up in, like, the Bahamas or <laughs> the Caribbean. Um, so these guys don't seem like they're surviving in that harsh of an environment, or are they? Uh, relative to some of the more extreme environments, not necessarily. I mean, there, there are extremophiles um, over a range of, of crazy, you know, you have organisms that exist in really low or high pHs, uh, some that you find at super high pressures either underground or at the bottom of the ocean, or even some that exist above the boiling point of water. So, yeah, in, in, in those terms, uh, this environment isn't too outlandish. Yeah, uh, it's a good place to be a microbe, but you know, despite the fact that you're doing field work in the Turks and Caicos, it's during the day not so nice, at least to walk around in the mats. Uh, they, they don't really take your weight, and so it's, uh, it's pretty squishy. Every time you take a step, it's, you know, you're, you're falling down up to your knees, basically, in old bacteria, and that gets old after a while. Wow. Okay, so I know it was quite an adventure and there were lots of obstacles to overcome in this particular instance of field work. What is one very funny or interesting memory of, of something that was maybe unexpected about doing this kind of field work, going to this very strange place and, and bringing a giant drone with you? Yeah, it's you know it, unexpected and maybe not super fun, but this year we brought out a, a bigger drone. We brought out a hexcopter made by the same company, but this one weighs you know, 10 to 15 kilograms and uh, comes with its own big box. And so the logistics of just getting this thing to the island in the first place were pretty exciting. Can you just describe the drone for the listeners? Like what how large is it? What does it look like? Yeah, so it's, it has six blades and each blade is probably about two feet across. In total, it's probably about four to five feet across when it's fully unfolded and uh, it's, it's carrying a miniaturized imaging spectrometer. So this is an instrument that basically measures reflected sunlight across a range that is covered by the pigments of the mats. And so you know, this thing kind of sounds like a lawnmower and it, it's super heavy and it comes with a really heavy and durable box. And uh, that, that was our, our kind of nightmare getting it down there in the first place. It took about a day to <laughs> figure out how to get the box onto the plane. Yeah, and, I imagine uh, that's not easy. No, it wasn't. But uh, by the by, the time we got it down, when we got to uh, 
well, I guess I'll talk about the flight path. You know, we're, we're flying from LAX ultimately across the East Coast and then down to the Turks and Caicos. And that comes with three flight legs, including one which is on a small local airline in the Turks and Caicos where we have to charter this small plane. And so we ended up having to take out a row of seats to put this big drone uh, into the plane. <laughs> so it uh, it was pretty exciting. It, That's so cool. It all panned out, yeah. You can uh, just flash your scientist card. Is that how it works out? I'm a scientist. I've got a drone. You get <laughs> cards. <laughs> I haven't got my card yet. Yeah, I wish it was that easy. <laughs> so this spectrometer that it's carrying, you say that it sees in these different wavelengths covered by the pigments that the microbes are producing. So if you if we can see that they're purple and green, like why do we need to send a multi-thousand dollar camera to be flown around by a drone to take a look at them? Yeah, good question. So the spectrometer is basically measuring reflected sunlight. It's a passive instrument and it's doing it over uh, a range that extends basically from the ultraviolet up to the near infrared. So that's uh, from about 400 nanometers to 1,000 nanometers. And for reference, the light that your eyes are seeing is from around 450 to 750 nanometers. And so, like you said, part of that range is exactly what you would see when you're looking at these mats. And that's that's in part why you can see that the cyanobacteria are this like bluish green color. But in this case, the instrument allows us to very precisely uh, look at pigments and their relative concentration across this range. And so uh, what you can do is for each pigment, you can see a characteristic absorption in the amount of sunlight that is scattered from the microbial mats. And then you can tag that to a specific pigment. So things like chlorophylls and bacteria chlorophylls and other more exotic pigments, these uh, things called phycobalins. And you can use that to track kind of really subtle changes in the abundance of these pigments and also the health of the pigments and, and tag that to environmental changes. And so ultimately we're kind of combining data sets here. We're taking the data set from the spectrometer, which is measuring these, the spatial distribution of these pigments, and then tying that to the digital elevation map that we made from the other drone. And the hope is that we'll have this huge data set in the end where we can go to specific points on the island and look at things like the health of the mats or their primary productivity and tie those to specific things like tides or elevation. So what have you learned so far from the data that you've collected? Yeah, so I, we got back about two weeks ago, thankfully with the drone and also with a bunch of data. <laughs> we ended up with about 500 gigabytes of raw data just from the spectrometer itself. Wow. And so it's, it's great to have all of that data, but along with that comes a whole bunch of data processing. And so we've, we've just started kind of to set up the pipeline, but we have processed a few images and uh, we're pretty pleased so far in that we are able to identify kind of the major pigments that we expect to see in these mats. And we can verify that at least a first order, the mats are behaving like we would expect them to behave. So we can see that in, in some of the healthiest microbial mats, the ones that are occurring kind of in, in deeper water and have lots of nutrients, there's a whole bunch of primary productivity. The productivity in those mats is a lot higher than other more desiccated mats that are kind of exposed. And so as we go through, we're optimistic that we'll be able to pull out some really cool results by tying this to the other data products that we've gathered on the island. We spoke to Cecilia Sanders, who's a group mate of yours, a few episodes ago, and uh, we, we talked about how a tricorder might work, and it sounds like you have it's basically... the same thing. Yeah, yep. you, you're flying a mobile tricorder, <laughs> and it's looking for 
biosignatures. Um, pigments is one really awesome biosignature. Mm -hmm. Like Lee said, there's uh, very specific spectral features that microbial life that uses sunlight will show. But then you're also able to really characterize the, the types of microbes and their distributions on this island. And that's, that's really amazing. I mean, I guess you could imagine like a shallow water planet that's just covered in these things, especially if there's some kind of limiting factor on multicellularity, like super high pressure or really high gravity that makes it less advantageous to try and keep yourself up than to just kind of spread out squish-wise along the along the surface of the planet. So maybe like you could imagine detecting this if, if you have just a world covered in, in cyanobacterial and like just mats, but it would you'd be picking up the, the top layer of pigment, but the you could have any kind of number of microenvironments underneath. Yeah. Well, Star Trek Discovery producers, if you're listening to this, I want microbe to see, world. I want to see. Yeah, I want to see a microbe world. I want to see drones in Star Trek used for exploration. For yeah, they sometimes they like jury rig a photon torpedo to That's right, to probes. take measurements. Yeah, yeah. they have pr plenty of probes, but you never see anybody whip out a, a remote control and fly anything around, which is kind of weird. I, I guess they don't really, their ship imagery is really great. They, they don't, they can take like drone level photos from outer space with their <laughs> ships. But yeah, and I'm, I'm surprised we didn't see it in something like Enterprise. I guess drones just didn't exist in the imagination yet. Do you want to talk about drones on Mars? Yes, absolutely. Tell me about drones on Mars. <laughs> Well, part of what I do at Caltech is also to work on the Curiosity rover. And some folks may have heard of Mars 2020, which is the next generation of Mars rovers. Um, so it's more or less a twin to Curiosity, but carrying a different scientific payload and going to a different place on Mars. And uh, one of the new items, one of the new toys that it'll very likely have is its own drone. And so the idea is that the rover, when it lands, will deploy this solar-powered drone. They'll then fly off, and it'll, it'll never quite visit the rover again, but instead it'll serve kind of a dual purpose, both of scouting the area in front of the uh, rover to figure out what the best path for driving is or what the best scientific targets are. And it'll also do really high spatial resolution imaging that uh, orbiters couldn't otherwise do of, of some of these target areas. And so it's it kind of goes to the point of how amazing the rise in drone technology has been over the last decade or so to the point where you know I didn't even know what these things were five or ten years ago mm -hmm. to the point where uh, we'll probably have these flying around on Mars uh, a planet that barely has uh, an atmosphere in, in just another few years. I heard a proposal recently to NASA for a mission to Titan uh, which is a world that for Saturn which does have a very thick atmosphere. It sound, yeah, I was going to say, Titan sounds, seems like it'd be an easier place to fly something around in. You just kind of have to give it a big old sail and let it float. Did forever. you know that if you build wings for yourself I in could your garage, fly. yeah, you could fly under your own power in, uh, in Titan's atmosphere because uh, the surface pressure on Titan is one and a half that of Earth's, so there's more stuff to give you lift. And the gravity is also much lower on Titan because it's just a, an icy moon of Saturn, so you could fly under your could own Could I just power. wear like a big sweater and flap? I, I, like, have, I, you, have you seen that video of Kit Harrington with like the big coat, like the big Lord, like a uh, Game of Thrones cloak flapping his wings like a dragon? Oh my gosh! Can't, can't yeah, say I guess that he I could have. fly. I guess he could fly away on. Titan. Yeah, yeah. And so there's a proposal to put a drone on Titan and have it hop around. And 
uh, that really excites me too. So drones on Mars, drones on Titan. Yeah, I might, I might work on Mars stuff, but I'd, I'd rather they send a drone to Titan, <laughs> and we haven't gone there in a while. Yeah, let's uh, and let's see some more drones in, in Star Trek as well. Yeah, Discovery. <laughs> Big tech now. Well, that's it for this episode. Um, I want to say that this is the last episode that we'll be recording for a while with Elise in the studio here with us because mm-hmm. Elise you have something exciting going on yeah soon. <laughs> I'm I'm actually flying to Scotland on Monday to spend a term in Edinburgh so I'm gonna be pretty pretty far off I and mean, I could probably still Skype in it wouldn't be the same but time zones and all unlikely you'll be hearing my lovely voice until next year I'll be back on January. So, yeah, we'll try to survive the first round of Star Trek Discovery episodes without you. Maybe we'll bring you in. Yeah, I can can send you some... Send you some comments so, for yeah, sure. Exactly. Yeah. Uh, and then for the second round of the first season of Star Trek Discovery, remember it's being broken up seven episodes, I think, uh, starting in September, and then eight more in 2018 in January. So yeah, we'll I'll be, be back, back for, for that. that. I'll so, be back just in time yeah. for that. I'm, I mean, I'm pretty sad that I'm not going to be able to watch Discovery back here and like talk to people about it immediately, but yeah, I'll see it. At least you'll get it on Netflix. The rest of us in the United States have to subscribe to this crazy thing called CBS All Access. <laughs> I don't know if you've done that yet, Nathan, but I still need yeah. to get on that. But the rest of the world gets it on Netflix, so I'm just like, really? Interesting. That's like the first time being in the U.S. with Netflix I mean, has, has been with any kind of streaming service has been a downside. Usually it's the Canadians like, okay, where can I get my American Netflix account? Like, <laughs> yeah. Well, although I, my Netflix account is American, so we'll see if it, it oh, hmm. yeah. make, I'll make a new one when there. <laughs> we'll see. All right. Well, have fun in Scotland mm-hmm. and uh, we'll hear from you soon. Yep. And thanks for joining us, Nathan. That was really fascinating yeah, to hear about your drone work. I'm sure we'll have you over again soon because you're doing all sorts of amazing things on this world and on other worlds. Yeah, and Sounds uh, great. That concludes episode 12 of Strange New Worlds. We hope you enjoyed our conversation about the use of drones for scientific purposes here on Earth and on other worlds. Elise is now off on her Scottish adventure. But I'll be back soon with a new episode featuring James Keane and our old friend Peter Gow, next time on Strange New Worlds. Until then, see you out there.